the International Baccalaureate would like to bring you a special series entitled Thinking About Day One, A Trauma-Informed Reopening of Schools. My name is Robert Kilty, and in this fourth episode, we speak with school practitioners, both with significant experience in post-disaster schooling and or is currently dealing with the issue with a social and emotional learning lens. In our first segment, we have David Weiss and Brandy Herbert. David Weiss has over four decades of experience in education at all levels, from educator to superintendent, and David has been passionate about an international education since 1983, when he became the IB coordinator of Southside High School in New York. Having taught IB history and IB psychology for 18 years prior, his leadership and understanding of sound methodology led the school in becoming a formal replication site for the Sharing Success Program and a model for public schools offering the IB Diploma Program. David co-founded and served as president of the Guild of IB Schools and spent more than a decade as a school administrator at the district level in Comac Public Schools, New York. He has been recognized for his work at Long Beach City School District as a superintendent for six years and was instrumental in Long Beach High Schools gaining national recognition as a school of opportunity for its commitment to equity and excellence. David joined the International Baccalaureate as head of U.S. Public Schools in 2017. Brandy Herbert is an experienced educator and current principal of the Center for Inquiry School 27 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Prior to her time as a head of school, Brandy built a wealth of experience as an educator, IB coordinator for the middle years and diploma program, varsity coach and administrator in Atlanta, Georgia. Ms. Herbert has traveled the world to train principals, coordinators, counselors, district personnel, and teachers around inquiry-based learning, interdisciplinary learning, and international mindedness. With all of these experiences in mind, Ms. Herbert leads school communities in urban settings with a diverse, inclusive, and inquiry-based vision for academic success by focusing on the whole child and developing social, emotional, behavioral, and academic structures that create positive school environments. David, thank you for being here today. Glad to be here, Robert. Brandy, thank you for being here as well. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with experts in the field around trauma-informed schooling and care, experts on how to help students, families, and educators metabolize primary and secondary trauma, as well as experts on how to ensure our schools and classrooms are anti-racist and supportive of Black, Indigenous, and students of color all in an effort to think about best practices of post-disaster schooling in the COVID-19 area. And David, you have significant experience in this regard, and in particular, reopening schools after 9-11 and the Sandy Hook hurricane. What lessons did you take away that others could learn from as a result of these experiences? Robert, I think that the experiences are, are important, but everyone is different. And um, the crisis that we're talking about this time, unlike Hurricane Sandy and unlike even 9-11, which was relatively regionalized, you know, those were localized disasters where external support was able to be brought to bear on our school community in a way that I think this one doesn't quite match. I think that we're in a global pandemic and it's a global issue, but the lessons that I learned particularly with Hurricane Sandy, was the need to bring families some level of stability and normality and structure as soon as possible. Here in Long Beach, 80% of the community was chased from their homes, some for a period of time as, as much as two, two and a half years. And, you know, our goal was to restore schooling in a way that provided children with stability as quickly as possible. And I think we're still seeing that kind of tension in the current dialogue about people wanting to get things back to as normal as possible. But we have to recognize that that normality is a new normal because families are still dealing with different levels of trauma at home and the staff is as well. 
I think that the second thing that I learned around that was just the importance of having physical safety and being very transparent about what is and is not happening. So following a hurricane, the big issue is the fear of mold and unhealthy buildings. And we had to be very transparent and uh, aggressive in ensuring that the physical environment, the physical plant was safe. And we were had to really communicate very strongly evidence because rumors were easily generated. And I think that the third thing that I learned was just the importance of communicating to families. The issue, uh, it happened in 9-11, it happened again in Hurricane Sandy, was communication was knocked out physically. And we didn't necessarily have robust means of communicating to families. So that's less apparent now. But I think in some ways there are children and families that don't have the same level of interconnectivity that others do. So you really have to be aware. And the communication with families needs to start before reopening. Has to be robust, has to be transparent, has to be two-way. Those would be, I think, the three key ideas. Stability ensuring physical safety and communicating. And in terms of trauma-informed, you know, I think right now so many districts, superintendents, school leaders, and teachers, we're all focused on the logistics of how to reopen, which is, of course, critically important in terms of student safety. But also in terms of the healing process, were you able to bring any trauma-informed approaches after the closure and after the reopening? Yeah, so that's what I think we learned a lot in 9-11 was how important that aspect was. So whereas with 9-11 that kind of emerged in the process, what I learned from that experience that I brought to Hurricane Sandy was the idea to run the mental health preparations right from the start. So while, you know, school administrators were working on the logistics and the building, the mental health and counseling staff were getting themselves prepared for the next step. And, you know, in that case, the lessons there, you know, was around ramping up our RTI model. You know, I think that the best practice is to have tiered interventions for students. You talk about tier one, which is your universal SEL components, those things that are applicable to all students. Tier two is targeted interventions when you identify students or families that have issues. And tier three is the intensive one. And we work with external mental health providers to ratchet that up. So a universal SEL became much bigger, stress management. So taking the counseling staff and the social workers and the psychologists who usually are doing interventions and having them do universal interventions and and training the staff on how to deal with stress management and identifying students and families that were particularly experienced the trauma and then working with outside providers to ratchet up targeted interventions. And we were very lucky, and again, I think this is a difference, to be able to work with uh, children's psychiatric folks from a local hospital on a grant to provide two years worth of intervention and screening for families and children, and then follow up with the level of intensity that was necessary for family counseling or for individual counseling. So the big thing to recognize is that schools probably have to really think about how they're screening and how they can involve local practitioners, doctors, to be engaged in that kind of screening for depression and anxiety that may not be immediately visible or may be hidden. And, you know, to take your specialized staff and turn them into uh, universal trainers for all the adults. And I think that the other two pieces that go with that is the need to recognize that you have to protect your staff. The staff themselves are experiencing the same trauma that students and families are. And in many cases, they have families. So they have to be able to take care of themselves in order to be providers. And that is one of the key aspects, I think, of trauma-informed schooling. And then you also have to get to the point where people can increase their sense of control over the situation. So in that case is, you know, engaging families in action 
And the way to do that in our case was to, you know, have people be involved in lobbying local legislators and public officials for funding to help repair and restore. So, you know, action is a key piece in this. So you're not just providing service, but you're providing means for people to increase the level of control they have over what is basically an irrational and arbitrary situation. I think you bring up some really critical strategies because every state, every district is dealing with different resources and to bring in those and partner with our hospitals and outside providers. And I think that's going to be just a very tangible strategy for everyone to think about that may not have the resources in-house to really ensure a softer approach. And Brandy, you are literally living this right now. The Atlantic reported in a survey in mid-June that 94% of superintendents in the United States needed more time in deciding how and when to reopen. Currently, we're starting to see the beginning of reopening plans come out, but we're already seeing adjustments just within the last two or three days. And so what are you thinking about right now as you continue to plan your school's reopening? It's refreshing to hear David because I am going to highlight and probably capitalize on a few of these same things that he mentioned. And so physical safety and communication were two of my top priorities. First and foremost, my top priority is the safety of students, staff, and our school community. With that being said, educators are being asked to prepare basically a whole new school system or school structure that has never been done before. We have less than an ideal time frame, and you're right, there are ever-changing guidelines. When you couple that with the uncertainty of schools and students' home lives, staff member home life, family, friends, and resources, it's been difficult for students to sleep, eat well, socialize, and most importantly, have a routine. Many students and staff are still grieving the loss of last school year. That was something that I had to really come to terms with as a principal, that my mindset from 50,000 feet in the air was the idea that our school year ended in March and we had to move right into virtual. And so I went into planning mode of everything virtual and didn't give initially enough time to allow students and staff to use the word grieve, the loss of everything that happened that fourth quarter, including field trips and sporting events and friendships and so forth and so on. And so what I recognized is that many staff and students are still grieving that loss and it might not manifest until they return to this school setting and have environmental triggers. So therefore, social and emotional, physical well-being of adults and children is absolutely my focus. However, it has to be done in very tangible and actionable steps. And to just hit back on that communication point, it is important that both principals and educators communicate. And sometimes we have to be open to communicate the message that I don't know what I don't know. And so as much as I can get out in front of my school community and say, I'm ready to have a Zoom, I'm ready to have a Teams meeting, I'm ready to FaceTime with some information, I have to be very honest that I don't have all the answers and I'm not upset at anybody because nobody has any of the answers or all of the answers, but we are all trying. We are all trying to do what is best. And as long as I can ensure that physical safety is my top concern, then I'm confident that I can communicate a clear and concise plan. I wish I had more time. I heard you clearly at the opening of this question talk about more time but we're set to open here in less than just a few weeks. And so the ball is rolling and, and our team is working. I really appreciate your focus on the social emotional space, especially after hearing so much expertise over the last month or so from experts in the trauma-informed arena. And to that point, are there specific strategies in the trauma-informed space and the bereavement space as well whether that be social and emotional support at the individual level or school community strategies that you're employing or focusing on specifically? Yeah, thank you for asking. I think one of the things that has been interesting with our staff is how much we lean on each other when we were remote. And so the amount of text threads, thank goodness most people have unlimited data at this point because the number of text thread messages, FaceTime messages, 
just conversation. You know, as a principal, I made it a point. I mailed a handwritten letter to every staff member checking on them. I called teachers daily and some teachers spent five minutes on the phone with me. Kind of, I'm good. Great for calling. Thanks. Bye. I have a family to take care of. While other staff members, I'll say it politely, kept me on the phone for 40, 50 minutes. And sometimes we talked about everything and sometimes we talked about nothing. But I knew, I knew that having their attention on the phone meant they needed some social connection. They needed someone to talk to that was maybe a source of their work-life balance that has been all thrown. So because of that, we have designed an SEL committee at our school that is focusing on how to implement trauma-informed practices into everything we do. And our focus is aiming to provide a predictable structure while we form caring and dependable relationships and educate and work with families in the community to help make sure we infuse trauma-informed and brain-aligned strategies into the lesson. And our main goal is to ground students, staff, and family in one essence. Ultimately, our goal would be to help our school community identify, understand, and manage emotions. And I am a principal of a K-8 building. Prior to that, I had nine through 12 experience. So working with these littles that I call them in our PYP has taught me that we are working on regulating and validating our emotions. To do that, we have to build relationships and human connection will be empathized as the crucial component. But above all, and I think David echoed this as well, is that we have to understand and recognize that this is not normal. And we can voice that. This is not going to be a normal school year. It's not going to be welcome back. Okay, we're going through some really tough times. Okay, great. We're doing it by socially distancing. Let's move on. We have to address the first step and admit it's not going to be normal. It's not going to be okay. It might even be bad. But we've worked really hard and we're aimed and armed and ready to take this on. And our team believes that just having that admittance and that belief is huge. We'll balance that with our responsive classroom. For some resources, we use zones of regulation, some SEL curriculum. We are looking at resilient schools training. And of course, we use our IB Learner profile. So that is our continued focus, but it all comes from honest conversations of just being okay with where you are. Some teachers are okay returning to school. Some are not. Some parents are. Some are not. Some students are some are not. And so that is what is unifying us. That is the one thing that we can be grounded in. And so that is our first step before anything else. You really gave our listeners some tangible strategies, one-on-one communications, an SEL committee that's going to be not only looking at trauma-informed strategies and care, but determining how to employ them. You did say a term, though, that some of us may not be familiar with. What is the zone of regulation? Yes. So our zones of regulation is something that our school has piloted for the last two years. And I feel just blessed in the way that we've had opportunity to start it before we are thrown into this, you know, re-entry plan. But it's just recognizing your emotions. When we're dealing with students, and again, I'm a pre-K through eight, but this works with nine to 12 year olds as well. And it works with my staff as adults. But it's recognizing and putting your emotions into four color categories. If you have seen Disney's Inside Out, you would recognize that you have four colors. So are you feeling blue, yellow, green, or red? And it's easy for students to notice what emotions. We have clip charts and we have colored things around our building that help us identify. And so one of our conversations, even with adults, as we practice active listening, is identifying, you know, in order for me to help you today, what zone are you in? And so are we in a a zone where we're hungry? Are we in a zone where we're tired? Are we in a zone where we're overwhelmed? Are we in a zone where we're all of those? Because you can be in two zones at one time. And by giving a name and a color to associate with your zone, it validates that emotion and allows the listener to know where to meet you. Because as you know, as a principal, when you come into my office and I assume I know the whole backstory, but I don't know any of the emotions of how the student got there, I am already at a deficit trying to build a positive relationship and move forward. So that's our way of having a commonality as adults and the students to understand where you're coming from. Because the worst thing to do is to make that assumption and assume I already know what you're feeling or thinking. And if I can't validate you and I can't co-regulate with you, then we're not going to make progress. And we're going to try to do that tenfold coming back to school after students have had no routine or structure or a lack of a consistent routine for almost six months. 
that's an innovative practice in terms of allowing students to name where they're at socially and emotionally and to feel that validation and then to have a school-wide approach of how to meet students where they are and help them move forward. And so now I'd like to ask you both some questions, and this is just really about what we're not talking about because school leaders at the building and administrative level are literally being bombarded with information, reopening plans, adjustments, varying options for reopening. Most will release their plans to the public in the very near future, if not the next week to two weeks. Are there key areas that we are not discussing that should be at the forefront of the conversation? I think it's the same thing we've talked. It's just mental health support. As educational leaders, mental health is going to be a top priority. And I'm just going to echo again to say we need to focus on where our students are and not assuming what we know. So to best support trauma and grief, the two key takeaways that I'm hoping parents and students and our staff can ensure that we put into practice is our ability to reconnect and to listen. And if we can do those two first and foremost on day one, where we establish routine and we establish procedures, because we're going to have that. We, we have to make sure we establish how our kids are walking six feet apart and wearing a mask all day and cohorting into classes and losing that socialization. And so while all those are being put in place, we cannot inundate and make that our everything. We have to make sure our reconnection and our physical and social well-being and listening because a kindergarten student and a fifth grade student and a ninth grade student are going to tell us things in very different ways. And as adults, we have to make sure that we are looking for and recognizing what they're telling us verbally and non-verbally in order to connect. And that is going to be by launching mental health supports in a time where with some budget cuts or the lack of mental health being a top focus, it could be having to utilize your own people and your own resources in your building. I would like to think that there is a movement that we will be able to use community partners and to branch a little bit further. But for the immediate future, I do think that rests very heavily. And I think our parents need it to also rest heavily on us as educators on the front lines. Yeah, I agree. David, what are your thoughts there? What's missing from the conversation? Well, I think one of the things that we have to be sure of is to recognize, and I think Brandy was talking about this a bit, that it's going to have a differentiated impact on staff, families, and children. So it's not going to be, this is no longer one size fits all. So just as with learning the uh, impact of the past year and the past couple of months in particular are going to be very different and plans may not necessarily mention that. What's kind of ironic today is, Robert, as we're talking, there's a tropical storm raging outside my house. And it reminds me very much that all of us have PTSD moments. So even though Sandy was probably nearly a decade ago, every time I see this, that you do get flashbacks. And that was the experience with students and adults in the school in the immediate. So this is not static, it's dynamic, and people's emotional lives are dynamic. The plans will only take us so far. It's really around ensuring that all of our staff see themselves as caregivers and that we're caregiving not just to each other and to the students, but to families and the community. And those are not going to be written into plans. Those are going to emerge and that has to be allowed to occur. And, you know, finally is really the budget piece. I mean, it's not being talked about here, but you must be able to maintain staffing in the areas that will help promote long-term mental health and recognize that we don't just get over a line, hey, we're open. We're gonna be living with the results of this, both in terms of student affect, but also in terms of their academic performance for the next decade. So this is not a short-term issue, it's a long-term issue. And our plans will only get us to the starting line, but we're gonna to have to be revisiting this. And it's not an excuse, but it becomes causal of issues that will probably surface later on. So that's what I think is missing in the discussion right now. I think people are looking on at what comes next month and what comes in September, but we have to be looking at September's from now. I think that's an important point. It's gonna be very interesting to see 
how history writes about this moment in time in this era and its long-term impact. And to that line of thinking in terms of how we rethink schooling in this moment, not only in the United States and the world, and especially considering the current movement for racial justice due to the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Rhea Milton, Chantel Moore, what should we fundamentally reconsider to truly bring about the learning experience that is transformative at the individual level, but yet oriented toward education for a better world at the collective level? Because I think that's what we all signed up for. And this may be a moment to where we can have that dialogue of how to rethink schooling. Um, so what are your thoughts there? I believe, one, the first step was that our state and nation have now deemed racism a public health crisis. Identifying that and allowing that to be an open dialogue is an opportunity for schools and school districts to make sure they have a strategic initiative to address this matter. We can no longer ignore it. So creating the mindset to strengthen and expand racial equity work, it is our work and our job to eliminate opportunity gaps and build capacity for team members to interrupt and address institutional bias. If we can continue as educators to address these ongoing efforts, there's a real opportunity for our students and adults to curtail racism but also recognize the negative effects on students, parents, and staff. Because one of the things we have to make sure we do is that we continue our work to not only become an anti-racist organization, but to set up racial equity for all students. So our school has created a racial equity team. So I know people who are listening think, wow, you have a lot of teams and a lot of people that support. We have a social emotional learning team and it, there is crossover. Some of those people are also on our race and equity team, but these are various staff members that are leading learners in our school community to facilitate professional development on the idea of tolerance and acceptance. But the key to me as an educator for 18 years and a, a principal administrator for 10 came at a training that I took two years ago and continued this year where I had to look at my own innate bias. And I had to make sure that I centered myself to see, am I culturally competent? Therefore, am I leading in a culturally competent environment in which climate and culture and curriculum are consistently and proactively addressing diversity and equity and fairness and social justice throughout the whole school year. But how am I playing into this role? Because I cannot sit on the sidelines and assume that I have the answers. I told you already, I don't have the answers, but I am willing to work with a team and investigate my own self as a learner and listen to other learners to learn from their experiences. And I think we have a real opportunity as we enter back into the world where student voices are so articulate and our world is ready to listen to the youth and to make sure that they are leading our future the way we want our future to go. And that excites me at an Ivy World school, even with all these restrictions that we have to put on place, we won't silence, you know, the mask isn't going to silence the student voice. It might change the way in which we work together and collaboratively and cooperatively through safe social distancing. But I do believe that this is the best time for us to be in education and have these real conversations. You know, Brandy, you bring up some important points. We spoke with Jamila Pitts early in the series, and the title of that episode was Racism, the Pandemic That Never Went Away. And I really appreciate your framing as a public health crisis. I personally have not heard that frame yet. And Jamila also really advised our listeners to start with themselves before employing strategies. So again, I, I really appreciate you bringing that point out. But you bring out a strategy that I have not heard of at a school level, and that was a racial equity team. Would you mind defining that a little bit more in terms of its scope and sequence of what it aims to do? Sure. So I am really proud. I am currently in Indianapolis, Indiana. And just last month, our board of commissioners approved a historic policy to address the ongoing efforts to, as I said, curtail racism. So all of our leaders in our building have taken some racial equity training. And the next step, I believe, after we have training ourselves was to put that into fruition and make that go somewhere. So we've created a team of teachers 
from all different levels and some community members and community partners because it's bigger than just your school. Your school is usually the epicenter of your community. And so we come together and I will be honest, it's a slow process. As a principal, I don't know, David, if you ever felt this way, but I can go from zero to 60 in about four seconds. And I want to implement a change and put it all into place you know, tomorrow. And this is an area that I've had to really slow down. And this is my fifth year in Indianapolis Public Schools, and this is my third year, and our racial equity team is just now to the point where they are at a train-the-trainer model, that through going through different case studies and talking about how, how people were affected and how I would have handled this, because everybody's past experiences shape their future and shape their perspective, and until we had a common understanding on our race and equity team of 10 to 12 people, we weren't sure how to put this out to families of a thousand families and so forth. So our team meets regularly. We review student data. So part of it is data driven to look at where our students are. Other parts of it is climate and culture driven in our world that we live in, both locally and globally. And from there now, we are ready this school year to bring this out to the rest of our parents and staff and talk about how we facilitate conversations. So we're looking at a common practice of facilitating conversations. How do we value and understand when something happens within our school walls, peer to peer, adult to peer or something in our community that we can actively work to address and then lead change and have a solution. So it's a work in progress and I'm ready to see where it goes. I'm just happy to be a member. I don't lead this team. I'm an active member on this team and had to make sure that our staff knew that with my assistant principal and I, we don't have any of the answers. There are many times I lean in heavily, emotionally and physically to others on this team to teach me or to allow me to learn and listen. So it is absolutely a action step. I would recommend a principal or a school district looking at creating a race and equity team. Thanks for your efforts in that space, Brandy. I think that's really exciting and innovative and hopefully will lead to real change for our students of color. And David, I mean, you've been a fierce advocate for equity and excellence for over 30 years. What are your thoughts in this space? So one thing I will say, for at least at the DP and CP level, the high school level, the IB has worked with the Dell Foundation, and we do have an equity and excellence framework, as well as case studies that are on the IBO website. And one of the key strategies is to have an E2 team in a building. Now, that's been geared particularly at the high school level and outcomes. But we have just opened this week, actually, a program community on the IB um, among the program communities that's moderated to deal with equity issues. Uh, that was in the works for the last year, something that would be a follow-up so that schools that are doing this work, and there are many IB schools that have been engaged in this work now for a couple of years, to try to look at practices. And I think that to your general question, Robert, I think that the issue is really one of the key pieces in the IB, and that is the the whole idea of individual and collective inquiry. We have to be very open-minded in looking at our assumptions about what we're teaching, how we're teaching it, and what we're learning and how we're learning it. And, you know, I think that certainly this time allows us to revisit what we're teaching so that the education experiences that students have in the classroom are authentic whether it's around the pandemic, what causes pandemics, what are the impact of pandemics at an age-appropriate way. I think that students will have that curiosity, and I think that we need to address it. And in the same way, issues around social justice, particularly among older children, where they can dig into what are the patterns of thinking that exist in a society and what are things that are hold us back in achieving our ideals. Those are things that students can wrestle with with each other as long as we establish the rules of inquiry and uh, allow for multiple perspectives to surface. Very important to hold to those principles. And those are embedded in all of the IB programs. So I think, you know, revisiting what we're doing as IB schools but through the issues of the current day and saying, what can we bring forward? I think what Brandy is doing in her school is extremely important. And it's extremely important to have a community uh, of learners engaged in that activity. In some ways, what is old is new again. When you start revisiting why you're doing what you're doing. And the better thing for the future is, is in fact, finding our best practices and bringing them to the fore. So to just kind of 
reiterate those points of racial equity team. And David, I do appreciate you framing inquiry as a means of anti-racism, because I, I do think that is a historical and important best practice that we often don't talk about. Any closing thoughts for our principals, our governing board members, our superintendents, our teachers, our families, our listeners who are grappling with this reopening process and also trying to ensure that we do this in a way that really uplifts our students when they return? Yeah, celebrate your small successes <laughs> as they come. Make sure you're celebrating them because, you know, there'll be a lot of things that aren't successful. So we have to celebrate what's successful, stay focused on it, revisit that, recognize that the journey is going to be bumpy, but that if we work together, pull together, we can come out of this in a way that makes us stronger. I agree with the way you said the journey is bumpy. My closing idea would be just being okay with the idea that feeling uncomfortable is growth. So if you are a type A planner and what teacher is not, you want your roster, you want your class set up in the right way, you hate when I pull a fire drill in the middle of something that you had planned, but being uncomfortable is okay. And then, as I said in our SEL, acknowledging how, where you feel in that is acceptable. And so our role then as educators is to just continue, and I know IB schools do, that young people need to be heard. And they have a passion for the current changes that are needed. So if your school team believes in that, then there's an opportunity to look at your learning experiences for all students please open up your ears to hear different perspectives and grow in our global thinking because the best thing we can do as a school is to create a safe space for these courageous conversations. In our second segment, we speak with John Ray. John joined Mulgrave School, the International School of Vancouver as head of school in August of 2010. Mulgrave is a co-educational preschool through 12th grade IB continuum school and John and his family relocated to Vancouver from Hong Kong, where he served nine years as the head of school for the South Island School, one of Hong Kong's leading international schools. Prior to this, John was head teacher of Kingsmead Community School, a public school in the southwest of the UK. He led Kingsmead to achieving the UK government's highly acclaimed Beacon School status and to language college specialist status. John, thank you for joining us today. It's nice to be here, Robert. John, you've had significant experience with schooling in post-disaster environments, health and mouth disease in the United Kingdom, and you also encountered the SARS epidemic in Hong Kong. Based upon your experience in reopening, two schools that were closed as a result of outbreaks. Can you describe what those reopenings looked like? I'm not sure I've been fortunate to have those three experiences, but certainly, you know, each one has had its own uh, particular circumstances. And what I can say that I've learned from those previous two experiences, and I think now I'm able to be a little bit more prepared in terms of returning to school as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic here in Vancouver. You know, one of the things that is really important is that you don't just respond on day one when young people come to school. And you know, one of the things that we've had some time to think about, so certainly in my current school at the International School of Vancouver, is to really think about how we prepare and we particularly prepare our teachers uh, for the return of our students in the fall at the start of the new school year. And what does those preparations for your teachers look like? We're right in the middle of this now, so it's a really good question, Robert. I think the main thing is, is that we really need our teachers to think about First of all, the nature of the trauma that young people have potentially experienced as a result of this pandemic. And we're really talking about ensuring that our teachers really think about and reflect on the, first of all, the fact that some of our young people have really struggled with online learning. We call it e-learning here. And whereas many young people have thrived and they've been very successful, for others, it's really not played to their strengths. If our students have any kind of uh, significant learning issues, if they have executive functioning issues, they've often been very exposed during this period in terms of their organization, their motivation. 
So being aware of the trauma, and I don't think trauma is too strong a word in that context, being aware of that, the trauma of the struggles that young people have had are important for our teachers to understand. The other thing which is much more obvious, of course, is the social isolation that young people have experienced. And again, there's a difference between the naturally gregarious young people who've made the most of using the technology to connect with their friends and family and others for whom that experience and those skills do not come naturally. So we are really worried about a significant minority of our students who have gone really into their own shells, have gone into isolation, have increasingly not been in contact with their peers and others. So understanding that and reflecting on that is important. We also have a group of students who may be in their isolation have also experienced family crisis. And again, lots of good feedback where families have valued time together, but others where families have really struggled and relationships have been very difficult. And of course, the third thing that our teachers really need to understand, and this has really come sadly on, on the back of the pandemic, is some of the issues of racism and some of the issues around the whole George Floyd issue, which has exposed some of our young people. Now, we had some very sad news from a questionnaire here in Vancouver yesterday that 40% of our Chinese Canadians uh, have experienced some kind of racism, verbal racism, or in some cases, physical racism. We have 25% of our students who come from a Chinese uh, language background in our school. And so our teachers need to be aware that trauma may be the result of a number of different experiences during this pandemic period. I couldn't agree with you more, John. And we have been speaking with trauma-based experts, experts who specialize in, in overwhelm and trauma-informed care. And I think one of the key questions that we're all feeling is, how do we respond knowing that our students are going to come with these types of traumas? And I think the four you pointed out really are transferable to schools around the world. And that is, online learning, social isolation, family crisis, and absolutely the pandemics of racism. Have you all had any thoughts to how you're going to support your students as they come back into the school setting? Yes, we have, Robert. And of course, this is not just about how we respond on the day they return, but it is also very closely linked to the culture that schools have created prior to this pandemic. And so one of the things that we work hard at in our school is to ensure that the climate and the culture of the school is one where relationships are very strong, relationships between students, between peers, relationships with teachers are very open and supportive and strong. And if you have that base in place, that is the starting point for when students return to school after trauma. And I would argue that, you know, unless there is some basis of that kind of culture, it actually makes supporting young people very challenging. Dealing with young people who have suffered some kind of trauma is challenging and it's difficult. It relies on not only there being a culture of openness and trust where young people can feel safe to talk about their experiences, both with their peers and the adults in that environment. It also requires a set of skills. We have a counselling team here, as many schools do, a specialist counselling team. But what we're talking to our teachers about, all of our teachers, and we do this generally as well, is how do you open up those supportive conversations? How do you give opportunities to sit and listen to the voices of students, listen to the experiences they've been through, both in group and one-to-one -one settings? So really just spending the first few days, really just making sure that you know, our, our teachers are reflecting on the kinds of atmospheres they need to create in their classroom and the kinds of scenarios where they can facilitate you know, young people to begin to open up and to begin to express their feelings about the things that they've been through during this pandemic. And those strategies were reinforced by three of our prior speakers, Dr. Kathleen Minky and Dr. Eric Rossen from the National Association for School Psychologists, as well as Laura Vandernut Lipsky from the Trauma Stewardship Institute. They also said the number one 
strategy has to be relationships at all levels. In addition to having the counselors in which you refer to how important dialogue with students is to metabolizing trauma to where students will not become saturated with that trauma and therefore hemorrhage as a result of that saturation. And in terms of looking for specific behaviors, how would you expect and or is your staff discussing how trauma would manifest itself in the classroom and or in the school overall? Yes, very, very much so, Robert. We are currently at the time of this interview at the end of our school year. In fact, today is the day in which our students leave for their summer vacation. And now we have three or four days with our teaching staff together where we are engaging our specialist counselors in really briefing the remainder of our teachers. And remember that we are dealing with three-year-olds through 18-year-olds, but working with all of our teachers to ensure that they recognize the signs of trauma and emotion, which aren't always obvious as your other speakers will have told you. But really, we call it here a rather funny term. We say our teachers' spidey senses. The spidey senses need to be even more acute with our teachers on the return of our students so that they are really beginning to just look out for the signs that young people have found this last three, four-month period exceptionally challenging. In that point, too, I think part of the transition into this dialogue with our students is how we prepare students themselves to deal with the issues that we're going to be facing as the pandemics continue. In your opinion, how should schools, whether they be international schools, international baccalaureate schools, or schools in general, should they generally prepare students to be dealing with trauma? Yeah, I think there are a number of different levels of this, Robert. I think I'm quite convinced that the, and I relate this back to the, the, the concept of school culture. What is really important, I think, as a starting point is that young people themselves are being briefed about how to look out for each other. However much young people will be showing signs and symptoms of trauma, we as adults probably don't see the majority of those signs, at least initially. The people that will see most of those signs are the peers and friends of those young people. So one of the things that is really important, I think, for every school, and certainly we will be doing this, is talking to our students collectively about how they can support each other. How can they look out for each other? How can they recognize the signs of trauma and emotion in each other? And of course, the way many of our older young people lead their lives these days, these signs don't necessarily show themselves face to face. These signs will often show themselves online. There's a whole online world that most adults never see. And I think it's really important that we are briefing our young people about the things to look out, whatever's written online or whatever's posted online, and that they then have access to strategies to both support directly, but also to seek support uh, from adults and others if they find that they have peers and friends in crisis. And just to reiterate these strategies, because I think the strategies that you're recommending are very doable, they're very tangible. It starts with the relationships, is furthered with authentic dialogue with students around their experiences, and then the school classroom and atmosphere to really look to the best practices of trauma-informed schooling and care, which is reducing distractions, um, having spaces for dialogue, counseling, mindfulness, things of that nature. And then to this very important point that you're bringing up is how we support students to support their friends and their other students. Any other support mechanisms that you all have considered that you would think would be important for other schools to consider as they begin to think about reopening? Yeah, one very practical idea, Robert, which I, which I think is important, and that is actually creating space for conversations and dialogues to happen. One of the dangers is when schools reopen that we rush back into our normal schedules. We rush back into you know, kind of our academic focus without deliberately giving the time and space for young people just to be able to share 
to talk, to rebuild relationships which have been become more remote. So I think all schools should consider that, not rushing straight back into whatever is the normal start of school year, but actually giving time to really reflect and time for young people and adults to reconnect within their communities. Any closing thoughts for educators, school leaders, superintendents, governing board members, heads of school, any closing thoughts in terms of your prior experience in post-disaster reopenings and your current leadership throughout the last two pandemics? Yeah, good question, Robert. Thank you. I guess my one piece of advice would be that not only to be reactive here in terms of trauma, being reactive and doing some of the things that I and and others of your guests have spoken about is really important. But I guess my final comment is that in order to respond to trauma and to traumatize young people effectively, the culture of the school has to be right. And not only the culture, but the kinds of skills and dispositions that we are developing in our young people also need to be right too. So our students' ability to deal with uncertainty, our students' ability to develop resilience and problem solving will come into play in a major way when they are faced with trauma, not only such as what we've got currently, but trauma in their lives. So I think a continued and increased focus on developing those core life skills will pay dividends greatly in the future when faced with trauma again. Thinking about day one, a trauma-informed reopening of schools is a proud part of the IB Voices podcast. To listen to more stories from the schools, students, and educators in the International Baccalaureate program, subscribe to IB Voices on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about the IB, including how to become an IB school, visit ibo.org. Thanks for listening.